Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 256. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, I'm back with internet instructional pioneer and Canadian legend, Mr. Stefan Kesting. How's it going, Stefan? Uh, very well. Thank you so much for having me on, Steve. I always enjoy talking to you. It was always a good time. You too, buddy. Well, hey, I mean, we probably don't need to do an intro, but just in case someone started jujitsu two weeks ago and stumbled onto this podcast and they don't know anything about the man who invented the heel hook, why don't you give yourself a quick introduction? <laughs> well, I started jujitsu slightly more than two weeks ago, slightly more than two decades ago. I want to say I started jujitsu in the late 80s when the Gracie in Action tapes came out. Of course, starting jiu-jitsu in those days was mostly trying to reverse engineer the whole damn thing from scratch, watching these tapes, figuring out that it was better to be on top than on bottom, not yet having discovered that you probably shouldn't train with hair pulling and finger locks and eye gouging and, uh, and fish hooking. We included all that. And then gradually over the years, we became slightly more technical, but still having fun rolling around on the ground with men. Now, wearing more spandex, then wearing more pajamas, but it's all good. Yep. Yep. Times change. And of course, for those who have been training more than two weeks, you're probably best known for two things. One is the founder of Grapple Arts, one of my favorite places to get jujitsu instructionals. And also you've got a well-known podcast of your own, right? You got the strenuous life. Why don't you talk about both of those just quickly for people? Well, Grapple Arts started out small. I had a, an idea. I took one submission that I'd been working on for a year, year and a bit, the Omoplata. And I had some ideas and I had some entries and I had some finishes and I had some concepts around how to incorporate the Omoplata into your game. And I thought I would make an instructional, but to make an instructional, you needed to make a website. So I made a website and I did all the HTML coding myself back in the day. And it's pretty funny when you go back in the Wayback Machine and take a look at it now, it really does look like something that was designed in the mid nineties or early, I say that was early two thousands. So it's been a fun journey and that, that site has grown to immense proportions. There's so much stuff on it now. So many videos, so many articles, so many writings, so many musings. And the Strenuous Life podcast, it does have a strong focus on jiu-jitsu, but I alternate roughly 50-50 jiu-jitsu guys and then people in fields that just interest me. I just finished interviewing Joost Kobush, who spent two winters on Everest, trying to climb Everest, but anybody can climb Everest in the summer, so he decided to climb it in the winter. And anybody can climb Everest with oxygen, so he decided to climb it without oxygen. And anyone can climb it in a group, so he decided to climb it alone. And anyone can climb it the standard route, so he decided to try and climb a route that's got more fatalities than it has successful ascents. It's a little bit of a schizophrenic or bipolar podcast, because it's really podcast about cool stuff that interests me, with sort of a focus on jiu-jitsu. You are much more disciplined, my friend, in keeping your podcast narrow and focused, which is probably why it's so successful. Look, man, it's 2023, right? If you don't have your own podcast, which is just about whatever is on your mind at any given moment, what are you really doing anyway, right? Well, there were a whole ton of podcasts started in 2020, 2021, and 2022 that have now bravely petered out as people have left their homes and people have gotten back to normal life. I'm happy to say my podcast was around before the pandemic and is still around now. Yeah. Anyone out there, if you want to open up your own podcast, my word of advice, if you want to be successful is much like getting a black belt, just don't give up. That's literally the only thing that's going to make a difference is just consistency. You know, we can go on about 
quality guests and high production value and all of this. But at the end of the day, 99% of podcasts are just going to die after a while. So if you want to do a jujitsu podcast and you want to succeed, make a commitment to yourself that you're going to do it for at least five years. That's probably the single (laughs) most important thing if you want to actually have a degree of success. I wonder if that's longer or shorter than the median marriage length these days. (laughs) Probably right on par with it. I got to say, doing this podcast has been a heck of a commitment, right? I'm sure you can relate. I talk to a lot of the other people who do these things and man, keeping up the motivation to do anything for a long period of time, especially because of how much work it is to find guests and, you know, edit the the episodes and publish them. It is very, very difficult to keep up the motivation to do that. So I'm very thankful for everyone who listens and sends in nice messages to us and signs up for premium because that's what keeps me going here. But yeah, man, podcast life, very much a, an artifact of the modern age. It's so strange, but it, it's It's really transformed a lot of people's lives. I remember back in the day, say, commuting to work and trying to scroll through the radio stations and, oh man, I hate listening to sports radio. I hate 90% of the music that's out there. And it has transformed, for example, my drives. I look forward to my commutes now because there's usually something that I really want to listen to. I've got my rotation of probably 10 podcasts. It's a weird eclectic mix of jiu-jitsu podcasts, history podcasts, a few science podcasts, and and it's changed my relationship with travel and being locked in my car for the better. And I know a lot of people like like listening to podcasts when they're doing cardio. Personally, I find that a lot harder. I can do it if I'm doing maybe zone one or zone two cardio. If I'm going any harder than that, I don't want to hear anything other than my own breath. But I know it gets a lot of people through their otherwise unbearable cardio sessions. I think it is for the better. Yeah, we're doing a public service, Stefan. We are bloody Mother Teresa's. Well, on that note, you know, there's one thing that we have a mission to do. We got to bring the knowledge to the people. We got to educate them on the way of the rolling back take. Now, I bring this up as an episode topic, Stefan, because you are in the midst of promoting your latest instructional, which is about this topic, something we have actually never discussed on this show in length. So I thought, man, what a great opportunity to actually have this chat with someone who literally just got out of the lab studying and putting together an instructional on this. But maybe tell me the journey here. I would love to know the story of why you decided to make this instructional at this time. Also, it seems kind of like a deviation from the stuff that I normally see you study. Well, certainly this wasn't a strategically thought out instructional in terms of any kind of master plan, but it is a topic that I became fascinated with about a year ago. So again, back in the day, I'll say 15 years ago, I was probably shown my first rolling back take, probably something against half guard. And, you know, I had some success with it, but in terms of putting together a system around it, that never happened. It was just a cool move that you would hit in isolation once in a while. And sometimes it would work and some, most of the time it wouldn't. And it, at best it was useful for putting the fear of God into people because nobody wanted to be hit with something that ridiculous or that seemingly ridiculous. So, you know, that was when I was young and that was when I had tons of time to train. It was yet another move to throw at people. And then, you know, over the decades, I've gotten older, I've gotten slower, I've gotten stiffer. I've had a hip replacement. I'm probably eventually going to need the other hip done as well. And at the same time, I think rolling back takes had a renaissance in the sport. I forget how many rolling back takes Craig Jones hit in the latest WNO. And if you watch, you know, the, the Meow Brothers, man, they're, they're living upside down. So it's this thing that's in the air. There's lots of people at a high level hitting rolling back takes against other high level people. And it's easy to write that off. It's easy to look at that and go, yeah, man, this is just like a flying triangle choke, or this is just like a flying arm bar against somebody who's stiff arming you from guard. Maybe it's okay for those super young guys to do it. Those super athletic guys. It's, it's incredibly exciting to watch, but this isn't for me. This isn't for normal human beings. But I started having some ideas. I started having some ideas of connections and trying to break it down. And I figured I should at least understand it because the best way to defend against something is to know how to do it. If you want to know how to defend against leg locks, you shouldn't just learn leg lock defense. You should learn leg lock offense because then you can basically defense is deconstructing somebody's offense at a certain level. So by understanding a technique, you can better defend it. So I thought, you know, given that this is having a renaissance, given that this is happening all over the place, 
And given now that it's not only pro fighters who are hitting this in competition, you're beginning to see white belts and blue belts go for it. Now, whether those white belts should actually be white belts or whether they're sand, being sandbagged by their instructors is an entirely valid question. But you are seeing people without a ton of experience hitting these moves. So I thought this has to be possible. And that set me off on a, a voyage of discovery through the world of rolling back takes and trying to find a pedagogy, not so much to teach anybody else, but to understand it myself. And it turns out that of all the super flashy moves that are out there and all the advanced moves and all the really impressive highlight reel moves that are out there being done by high-level guys, this is absolutely, I think, the most accessible move by people who are not that fast, by people who are not that flexible, by people who aren't that coordinated. I was very pleasantly surprised to find that I found a system for teaching it first to myself, and then I tried experimenting and teaching it to other people. And I taught it to, you know, some people in their 50s. I taught it to one guy in their 60s, and he was doing it one guy in his 60s. And then as the final proof of concept, a friend of mine, who you know, Richie Yip, asked me to teach his white belt class because he was sick, I think. So, okay, so I went and taught his white belt class, but he didn't, he had, he'd made the fatal mistake of not telling me what he wanted me to work on. So like, okay, cool. I'm going to leave a little grenade here for when you get back. And I put a group of, I want to say 10 white belts through this three-step progression on learning to do the basic scissor wedge back take. And by the end of the class, everybody was doing it, including people who had maybe been training for two or three times. Now, is that the very best thing that somebody who's only been training two or three times, two or three classes in their life should be doing? No, but it was fun. And I think fun is underrated component of training. And it was fun for me, leaving little grenades for Richie to have to deal with when he comes back to class and he's got these white belts leaping over other white belts. And it was also a proof that you don't have to be super skilled or super coordinated so long as you have the right pedagogy, so long as you have the right progression for teaching the move. And the, once I had those components, I was like, yeah, maybe I should put this out in an instructional because I'm sure other people would like to have an effective way to take the back other than the traditional ways. And it will make their traditional ways of taking the back or getting to mount even more effective. That makes a lot of sense. And I definitely agree with your self-assessment there. When people talk about rolling back takes, what comes to mind for me is small, limber, young super athletes doing this kind of stuff. What doesn't come to mind for me is an old, crippled, geriatric, bald German who is seven feet tall or whatever you are, right? I mean, you don't exactly fall into the demo of people that I expect to see rolling back takes. And I agree with you on this. Rolling back takes are one of those moves. Now, granted, I'm speaking with broad brushes here because there's a lot of different types of rolling back takes. 100%. Yeah, but there are some versions, at least. You know, you talked about the most probably obvious version, which is from topside half guard. That is not really a technique that requires a ton of athleticism. It looks super cool. And if you see someone do it at full speed, it does look like it was actually probably pretty challenging, but really it's not that hard. It gets a bit more difficult if you're doing it from a more open disengaged position. Like if you're in someone's open guard, it can be a little bit dicier. And I'm sure we'll get into that on today's conversation. But before we do, just for people who might not be familiar with what exactly we're talking about, maybe tell me a bit about for you, what is a rolling back take at a conceptual level? And why would someone want to do this as opposed to doing, I guess what you would call traditional Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you know, kind of a, a more standard get topside position, pass the guard, advance through the positional hierarchy to mount to the back. Why would someone want to go for this rolling back take approach instead of that? And what does it look like in practice? I think the easiest way for people to understand at least what this vaguely looks like that they've never seen it before is to Google rolling back take or go on YouTube and type in rolling back take. Fundamentally, for the types of rolling back takes that we're talking about today, and we should talk about the other types that we're not talking about today, you're starting in a top position and you're diving over your opponent's legs, typically putting your butt near their face or your feet near their face, your own head near their feet, kicking them over you and taking their back. Now, that's poorly described, but if you are watching this in competition, if all of a sudden, whoever you're watching, I don't know, Mika Galvao is on top, and he rolls and it looks like a somersault and boom, he teleports onto his opponent's back. 
you've probably just watched a rolling back take. I don't think a rolling back take is a tool that should be used by itself. I think it should be used in conjunction with traditional ways of taking the back and getting to a more dominant position than where you started. But having this threat, it's like saying, Stefan, should you have a hook or should you have a cross? The hook is a powerful way to land a powerful shot and the cross is a powerful way to land a shot. Well, of course, in the boxing context, the answer is to have both because the hook sets up the cross, the cross sets up the hook. In a grappling context, having a traditional way of climbing, say, to the mount. And if people know what a dope mount is, it's kind of like where you force your opponent into a reverse half guard, where if you force your opponent onto their side, you then put yourself into the half guard, but not that they're hooking you with a bottom leg, it's so that they're hooking you with a top leg. I've got a little video on YouTube if they want to search how to do the dope mount testing, they can find it. It's a very useful progression. You see it a lot in MMA. Damian Maya is brilliant at using it. And in, in an MMA context, the consequences of ending up on the bottom are so high that he mostly uses it to go to mount. So it's a very effective way of going to mount. But if that's all you're ever doing from there, then your opponent's going to become really good at defending that. So if you can use the double threat, say going from dope mount to mount and dope mount to the back via rolling back take, then you've got a hook and a cross. And I think if people know what a dope mount is, the basic rolling back take from dope mount is probably the place to start when you're starting to screw around with rolling back takes and even rolling back takes from the bottom. Rolling back takes from the bottom would be things like barambolos because that fundamental mechanism of where you've got one hook in, we call it the bolo hook, and the other leg wedging at the hip, that's the scissor wedge. So you, the full name for the basic back take would be the bolo hook and scissor wedge back take. That's one mechanism of many in rolling back takes. It's probably the simplest one to learn. It's probably the easiest one to do, especially if you have limited flexibility and limited mobility. But I think the most important thing is to drive home is that it's not either or. It's not newfangled rolling back takes versus traditional ways of taking the back. It's you use them together and one makes the other better. Your threat of the rolling back take makes it easier to go to the mount. Your threat of going to the mount makes it easier to go to the rolling back take. If I have you again in dope mount and I'm threatening to go to the back, I'm threatening to roll, you're going to stop the roll. To stop the roll, you're going to kind of spread yourself out. You're going to make your, you're going to try and widen your base, which means you clamp down less effectively on my leg, which means it's easy to go to mount. Conversely, if you're worried about me going to mount, you're going to clamp down on my leg like crazy. And that makes the rolling back take much easier because now we're, our legs are completely glued together and it makes the rolling back take and makes the mechanism of the rolling back take that much more effective. For people like me who, kind of started jujitsu the traditional way. I was always taught that there is a hierarchy of positions, right? You'll hear people talk about the positional hierarchy. And the idea is at least the old school approach is that you advance up the ladder of these positions. You maybe start on the bottom in an inferior position, try to get to guard, try to sweep onto the top, pass the guard to side control or knee on belly or whatever. Then you advance to a mount or to the back. And the first time I started seeing rolling back takes, it kind of felt really weird to me because it seems to break that rule of this positional hierarchy. Uh, you talked about this earlier. If you ever see someone who's just kind of in an open guard, either on top or bottom, and then suddenly they're on the other person's back, that's a good indication that you just saw a rolling back tick. And it's weird to see because, at least if you're a traditionalist, it's weird to see because you expect to go through this hierarchy of positional advancement. But I guess the thing that rolling back takes kind of taunt me is that positional hierarchy is very much a, a construct based around the classical Gracie-based understanding of using a guard to sweep, get on top, to go through these positions. Um, the rolling back take really just opens up this entire other possibility. I've talked about this before on the podcast. It's almost like a wormhole or a portal in some ways. It feels like you're kind of skipping positions. You're going right from open guard to suddenly I'm on their back. And there's, like you said, a tremendous amount of power in having that arrow in your quiver, even if you don't use it much. 
so much of jujitsu is about predictability and trying to make your opponent predictable while making yourself unpredictable. Having a few oddball approaches here or variant options you can use to get something done it makes it way harder for your opponent to guess what you're doing, right? And so, like you said, even if you're not using a rolling back take 100% of the time, the fact that it's on the table as an option is going to make your opponent guess, which is going to make all of their decisions worse. 100%. And it also sets up submissions. If the person is busy defending your back take, there's all kinds of leg locks that they open themselves up to. They open themselves up to the twister. They might do something stupid with their arms and give you a Kimura, depending at what stage you intercept. But talk about the skipping positions. If I have you in my guard, the classic progression is going to be, you are going to pass my, work to pass my guard, and you're going to get past the entanglement or the clamping or the frames of my legs, establish side mount, then from side mount, you're going to go to mount, then from mount, you're going to go to the back. That would be the classic progression of how jiu-jitsu is sort of supposed to happen according to helio gracie and it's not a bad progression and it's certainly been proven in countless matches and countless mma fights and i think that's an incredibly valuable approach but if we throw a rolling back take in there you're kind of going directly from inside someone's guard to changing the guard around so now you can have your legs arranged so you can establish your hook but you're still technically in my guard. You haven't gotten points for passing the guard, let alone mount yet. And then you're teleporting directly to the back. So you're teleporting directly to the final position. Similarly, the Barambolo, if I have you in my guard, Steve, and I manage to sweep you, typically I'm going to come up in your guard. And then I'm going to have to fight to pass your guard. And now I'm inside mount. Now I go to mount. Now I might go to the back. Barambolo, which is basically a glorified rolling back take from the bottom, allows you to go directly from using your guard to teleporting onto someone's back. So you're skipping even more steps when you're doing a rolling back take on the bottom. Now, I think from a sport jiu-jitsu, there's undoubtedly been a divergence between sport jiu-jitsu and MMA. And I would be extremely worried or extremely leery of using a rolling back take in an MMA context. I would have to be very desperate, maybe there's 15 seconds left in a round and I, I know I'm behind on points and I have to finish this by submission. That's maybe an MMA context where I might go for a rolling back take to try and get on the back and try and finish that damn choke. But I think trading a top position for a potential bottom position in MMA when you have the potential of just sitting there on top and hitting the guy would probably in most cases be a bad idea. In a jiu-jitsu or a no-gi grappling context, it usually makes strategic sense because the back is so dominant and so many matches finish from the back. And the consequences of the guy somehow getting out and you ending up on the bottom aren't the best, but they're also not catastrophic. So I think we would need to make a distinction between MMA and more of a sport jiu-jitsu context here. I'm not saying, as soon as you say, I probably wouldn't use it in MMA, some dude's going to go out and do it in MMA. I've seen Baron Baltos used in MMA right after I said, ah, this is probably just a sport technique. And then as soon as you say that, some dude pulls it off in MMA. And it actually, if I recall the instance correctly, it saved his ass because he was on the bottom about to get uh, stomped. Yeah, and yeah. Have you seen that clip? It's uh, some skinny young guy. And the Baron Bolo ends up leading to, I think, a standing clinch where the guy ends up behind his guy, but it's still way better than being on the ground getting punched and kicked in an MMA context. Yeah, I haven't seen the clip, but I'm not surprised. There's always going to be someone who's able to pull the stuff off in unexpected scenarios. Although, honestly, I mean, some aspects of rolling back takes, I could envision translating relatively well to MMA. The one thing about rolling back takes, and again, there's so much variability here. It's hard to speak in with broad strokes because it's very different if you're doing it from bottom position versus top position. It's very different depending on how your legs are intertwined with your opponent. And it's especially very different if you're talking gi or no gi, right? I mean, doing a rolling back take in the gi is going to be a hundred times simpler because you can actually grab onto things. The big thing about rolling back takes is that they require a creation of a lot of motion, which is kind of different from, I guess, the traditional way of doing jujitsu, right? Classic jujitsu is often kind of slow, plodding, crushing, 
forward pressure, right? Kind of the, the typical slow pressure game. That's what you think about often when you think of uh, classical jujitsu. And a lot of that involves getting in tight and restricting your opponent's movement. The weird thing about rolling back takes is they kind of seem to violate that concept because instead of trying to lock your opponent into position and render them immobile, you're actually trying to force mobility out of them. You're moving yourself a lot to force them to move. And the hope is that when both people are rotating, you kind of land up in a locking position where you're on their back. Now, like you said, many things can go wrong in that that attempt. And that's probably the main criticism about rolling back takes. But yeah, maybe talk a bit about that because that is philosophically the thing I find odd about rolling back takes. I'm usually so focused on shutting down my opponent's motion. But with rolling back takes, you're actually often trying to do the opposite. You're trying to get them spinning. I think there's real value in embracing the motion for at least part of your training. The best example is what happens when you've got a guy who's been training traditional old school Brazilian jiu-jitsu with the gi for decades, right? They, they're used to getting their cross collar grip. They're used to getting the triceps grip and getting the close guard and pulling and, you know, doing this slow incremental grappling. And then they go to nogi and all of a sudden there's no lapel there. There's no sleeve there. And they're trying to impose that clamping slow game in a nogi context. So although I agree that certain aspects of rolling back takes are simpler or are, are somewhat easier with the gi, I think there's ample evidence and ample ways to do them nogi that you can pretty much compensate for it. And if you embrace the movement, then you've got an advantage. First of all, you're initiating the movement. And secondly, you've spent more time, hopefully, drilling and exploring the various avenues that can come out of that movement than your opponent has spent defending them. So if you've put in your time, if you've studied the various entries and if you've studied the various exits, the various ways that this could end up, then you'll be much more comfortable with the variability that gets induced by the movement and also more comfortable in scrambling in general because scrambles are going to happen. And so you don't want to be that guy who is used to, you know, I don't know, playing lockdown half guard, but oh my God, the guy stood up and now there's a scramble and now you don't have a game that can accommodate movement. There's a concept that I don't know if we've discussed before. I don't think we have. I came up with it years ago and then I found out that John Will the Machado Black Belt, who was basically the father of jiu-jitsu in Australia, also came up with it. So I don't know if I stole it from him and don't remember stealing it from him, or if we came up with it at roughly the same time in an example of convergent evolution, but it's the idea of hourglass theory. If you've got a move, call it the omoplata, call it the heel hook, call it the arm bar, call it the rolling back take. That is the narrow part of the hourglass, right? An hourglass has got a wide top, a wide bottom, and then a narrow constriction in the middle. The narrow constriction in the middle is the move that we're talking about. Say it's, like I said, the Kimura, the Omoplata, the rolling back take, the whatever. The top part of the hourglass is all the ways to get into that position, all the different ways to set up, in the case of the rolling back take, you can set up the rolling back take from leg wave passes. You can set up the rolling back take from scrambling passes. You can set up the rolling back take as a counter to leg, as a counter to standard ashi in the leg lock game. You can use the, get into the rolling back take as a counter to the heel hook from the 411. You can get into the rolling back take from other submissions. You can get into it from static positions. So all those are the top part of the hourglass. That funnels down into the center part of the hourglass, which is the movement itself, essentially the mechanism using one hooking leg and one wedging leg and the momentum from rolling. And then the bottom part of the hourglass where it gets wide again are all the ways out of the technique, all the things that can happen. Ideally, you end up flipping your opponent and taking his back and then attacking him from the back. But so many other things can happen along the way. The guy might sprawl out as you're trying to roll and refuse to roll. And that opens up a route to the mount. Now you've got two ways out of the position. The guy might allow you to roll, but then stall out. And then you start going for, back in the day, we would have called them the crotch ripper series. Nowadays, it's mostly called the truck. The attacks 
the various leg locks and arm locks and spine locks that come out of the truck or the crotch ripper position. Or then going back to the mount or rolling back up into dope, but now the guy's got the fear of God in him that you're trying to take his back, and now it makes passing to the mount much easier. So understanding the counter and recounter game is the bottom part of the hourglass. And that can get very wide, and if you have more knowledge there than your opponent, then even if it doesn't go exactly the way that you want it to go, you're still in familiar territory. You've still channeled this into an area that hopefully you understand better than your opponent. And because you initiated it, you have some inherent advantage. Usually the person who initiates a move has got, call it 50, just by virtue of them initiating something, if they didn't telegraph it too badly, has got some measure of advantage. Yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking of things. I mean, presumably, if you're doing something, if you're initiating something, it's because it's a technique or sequence that you're good at. So presumably, you're doing it because it's an area you've trained strongly, and hopefully, you've trained more than your opponent. Um, I like that idea of hourglass theory. It kind of reminds me of something that Margot Ciccarelli has talked about. Um, she's said before that there is a difference between static and dynamic control of your opponent. Static control is more that, I guess, classic jujitsu approach where you're trying to restrict your opponent's movement. You're trying to basically take away all of their options so that they become very predictable. But you can cross that or but you can compare that with dynamic control, which is more where you introduce a lot of variability, but that's your comfort zone um, to the point where you're just trying to stay one step ahead of your opponent through movement so that no matter what happens, you are one step ahead of them. And rolling back takes a very much an example of that. You're increasing variability, but if you've drilled that more than your opponent, if you've practiced it more, that should lend to your advantage. So I guess instead of trying to restrict that hourglass and narrow it, you're trying to widen the hourglass. You're trying to create a lot of options that can mess with your opponent. And I think that kind of blends into, I guess, the nomenclature here. I mean, someone fact check me if I'm wrong, but I believe the whole concept of the Barambolo as it's named uh, was originally named by Andre Galvao. And I believe in Portuguese, it translates roughly to scramble, right? That's the idea. And I think that is a great illustration of the Barambolo, a great way to describe it, because if you've ever sparred with someone who's good at rolling back takes, the thing that you find very quickly is they can just pop up out of anywhere. You think you're in a completely safe position, and then all of a sudden, next thing you know, there's a rolling back take happening. And that can be very different from a more classic static control jujitsu approach where you're trying to move methodically. Because look, I mean, if I'm in your guard and you kind of go to a knee cut type position, right, I can pretty clearly predict what your next sequence of actions are going to be because there are things that make sense to do if you're trying to shut down my movement. But if rolling back takes are on the table, there could be this explosion of movement at any moment. And the next thing you know, suddenly I'm defending from turtle or I'm defending and trying to prevent you from getting your hooks in, right? So it's a very different way of controlling someone. Yeah, there are two or three major mechanisms at play for rolling back takes. One of them would be the bolo hook and scissor wedge, at least in how I organize it. Another would be a twister hook which uh, is typically thought of as a move that requires a ton of flexibility, but I outright stole a method of inserting the twister hook from a guy called Bjorn Friedrich, who I've never met. I've just seen some of his stuff online, and uh, I loved the way that he sets up the twister hook because the twister hook, the way it's done in, say, the 10th planet systems, requires a lot of external rotation of the hip. And I don't have a lot of external rotation of the hip anymore. So to set that mechanism up, requires some adaptations and i really like what mr friedrich over there in germany somewhere did then there's also the leg bundle mechanism where you end up taking both of the guy's legs between your legs it's i call it sort of dagestani rear mount dagestani mount is when let's say i've got you up against the fence and i'm pulling forward and you're sitting up and i trap both of your legs in a triangle that'd be around your knees and pressuring down to stop you from standing up and extracting both feet if you rotate that, and I'm doing it on your back, so I'm low on your hips, but have uh, essentially triangling my legs around your your thighs, that's what I call Dagestani rear mount. So depending if we're talking the scissor wedge mechanism, the twister hook mechanism, or the leg bundle mechanism, you can set those up different ways. I think the easiest one to learn is the scissor wedge mechanism. And to set that up, 
all you need to do is force somebody into dope mount. So I think most of the art of learning and becoming confident with a rolling back take is finding ways to set up dope mount. Are you caught in standard ashy? How do you set up dope mount? Are you caught in double outside ashy? How do you set up dope mount? Are you scrambling past the legs? Are you standing as your opponent on his back? How do you set up dope mount? Are you attacking with the Kimura? How do you set up dope mount? Are you holding somebody in side control? How do you set up dope mount? So that's why it can come from anywhere. Because all you have to do is essentially pull the opponent's top leg. If he's slightly on his side, pull his opponent's top leg over, pull your opponent's top leg over and step into that space between their legs. And you have either the opportunity to do a rolling back take or climb to the mount relatively unobstructed. I love that position because a rolling back take there is an option, but it's not your only option. I mean, just from a philosophical standpoint, the type of jujitsu I like to play is methodical positional advancement. And so I rarely, if ever, attempt a rolling back take when I'm on top, just because I don't want to run the risk of losing that position. But the thing I like about what you're describing here is, yes, if you can get someone's legs folded over in that manner, you can advance quite cleanly to mounts, even to side control. I mean, you're not required to go the rolling back take approach, which I think is part of the flexibility there. Yeah, it's not a positional dead end. I mean, there are positions in jiu-jitsu that are positional dead ends. Probably the best example is Kezagatame, that scarf hold from judo where you're bringing one arm around the guy's head and controlling his arm with your other arm. It's kind of like a very advanced headlock. It's a fantastic position. You can 100% tap people out from there. I've been tapped out from there. There's a ton of submissions you can set up, but getting out of it, man, that's tough. It is tough to abandon ship and switch to something else against a determined opponent without giving him a very serious opportunity to take your back. That's a dead-end position, and what we're talking about here is kind of the very opposite of a dead-end position. Yeah, maybe before we move on here, uh, again, this kind of stuff is always hard to visualize through audio, but you use the term scissor wedge, and I love that term because it kind of descriptively implies what you're trying to do here and what ultimately makes this rolling back take work so that the person doesn't just go flying off and you wind up resetting from a neutral position. But maybe to the best extent possible, at a conceptual level, what exactly is a scissor wedge And why does it work so well for something like a rolling back take? The breakthrough that I had in trying to figure this stuff out was going back to a game that I played when I was very young called Indian leg wrestling. Probably now it's called leg wrestling. I apologize if I offend anybody, but we called it Indian leg wrestling. And that's where you and I are lying facing opposite directions. Roughly my shoulders are kind of by your butt and your head, your shoulders are kind of by my butt. And we kick up our inside leg, and we hook around each other. If you're on my right side, I'm going to hook your right leg with my right leg, knee pit to knee pit, and we're going to try and force each other's hips off the ground. And there's technique there, but also obviously size and strength plays a a huge role. So now if we go to that same position, maybe people are visualizing hooking their opponent's right leg, knee pit to knee pit with their own right leg. Change that up. So your opponent's leg stays exactly where it is. His right leg is still in the air but you're bringing your outside leg, your left leg, to hook his right leg. So it's no longer symmetrical. Traditional leg wrestling, symmetrical. Modified leg wrestling, which is what I'm talking about here, is asymmetrical. I'm hooking your right leg with my left leg. Now, if I just kick with that leg, you kind of slide around. If I bring my inside leg up into a little mountain, into a little wedge that's placed right at your hip, I essentially kick your leg over that wedge and that forces you to turn Uh, i did just publish something on youtube i think it's called the easiest way to do a rolling back or to learn the rolling back take and that in which i share this progression it's not the only way to do a rolling back take from the top it's not the only mechanism but it's the most important one i think because it sets you up for success and it gets that feel of popping your opponent over your leg essentially a wedge restricts movement And in this case, the wedge is preventing you from slithering away. When people are training rolling back takes, they might learn the steps. They might be able to do it perfectly against the compliant opponent. And then as soon as they start doing it in sparring, this always happens. They remember the kicking leg that drives the action, but they forget about the wedging leg 
which forces out a, your opponent to kind of pop over you and to present his back where you can then climb onto his back. It's always the scissor wedge that they forget because it's not an active leg. It is active, but it's not doing the big dramatic motion. It's not doing the hooking and the kicking. It's just holding the opponent in place. It's like the difference of, I don't know, running down a street with your arms out. You're going to keep on running down the street with your arms out. But if a lamppost hooks your arm, you're going to spin around. That scissor wedge in your hip or that wedge in your hip serves the purpose of the lamppost. You've got momentum, you're running forward, boom, you hit that lamppost, you spin around. In this case, you boom, you've got momentum, your leg is going. You hit that wedge that's in your hip, you spin around, and by spinning around, you present your back to me, making it much easier to take the back. That was actually a really awesome way to explain it. Yeah, that makes a, a ton of sense. And you're completely right. The mistake most people make here is instead of doing a scissor wedge on the leg, which is really the mechanic that makes this work, they try to just kind of hit the person's leg and force them to spin. And I mean, look, that's fine. But the problem is, if you don't have that control, you're unlikely to wind up attached to the person's back. You're probably going to wind up um, with them turtling and escaping or they disengage, you know, the whole position gets disengaged and you lose it. And that's always bad, especially if you were the person on top when you did this. You'll probably end up on top again. Yeah, probably. But you've taken being on top for sure to probably being on top. So that's that's not a good exchange. Exactly. Yeah. You've spent a lot of effort and you've created a lot of movement to do something that only reduces your likelihood of maintaining position, right? But the scissor wedge where you clamp their leg together, that combined with the fact that you're forcing them to spin, that's the thing that allows you to stay glued to them and it is so critical. So I'm glad that you brought that up and I think that's a great explanation. It's the one time in my life that I want to be an old school Taekwondo instructor walking around with a bamboo sword, a shinai, and whack people when they do something wrong. If they do it and they don't keep that wedge there, I want to come around and whack them. It's a, probably because it took me so long to figure out what I was doing wrong. It took an embarrassing For somebody who's got multiple stripes on his black belt and has been a black belt since 2006, I didn't have anybody teach me this stuff. This was watching and deconstructing other people doing it and experimentation. And so when I finally got it, it's like, oh, now I understand. And so now when I share it, I really want people to to have that light bulb moment. Because I think ultimately, to go back to something I said earlier, those light bulb moments are a big part of what keep people in jiu-jitsu, right? There's, do, there's doing the same old thing that you always do and having it work, and that's great. But those times when you're like, oh, I understand now, those are so much fun. And and I, I live for those moments as well. You know, it's funny you bring that up because I think this is one of the reasons why it gets kind of harder to keep up your motivation for a lot of people as they go through the jujitsu process. You know, when you're a white belt, even a blue belt, everything is so new and novel and constantly stimulating and you're getting measurably better on a week by week basis. There's new things you're learning that you can point to, but like you said, you know, when you've been doing this for 15, 20 years, you've seen a lot. It gets pretty difficult to see and try something that's completely novel and unexpected. So especially given that you at that point, you have a vested interest in being reasonably good. And almost by definition, if you start trying to incorporate something new into your game, you're going to take a step back. You might have had, let's say you're a brown belt and you've got brown belt level guard passing, but now you're trying something different. You might only say, instead of passing the guard, you're going to go for rolling back takes. You might only be a blue belt or a purple belt in rolling back takes, or let's take this away from rolling back takes. You're going to start dropping back into leg locks. You might only be a blue belt or a purple belt in leg locks, meaning that people that you were going against, if they're good at defending those things, are going to take advantage of you not being very good at that yet, yet being the operative word. But you've got to get through that, I don't know if uncanny valley is the right is the right word, the dip. You will take, your skills will erode when you try something new, generally speaking. So I think it becomes harder. Yes, you know, as the more advanced you get, the more you know, the harder it is to find something completely new. But at the same time, when there is new stuff, you often consciously avoid it because you know, intellectually or subconsciously, that you're going to take a slight step backwards. 
or in the case of a rolling back take, probably not a slight step backwards. You're probably going to wind up dropping yourself on your face or something really embarrassing, right? And I, I think there's less things that can go wrong learning your rolling back takes from the top. If I was going to teach somebody the Barambolo, say, rolling back take from the bottom, I would start them out with a rolling back take from the top just because it, it takes a bunch of the awkwardness out of it. I think it requires much less athleticism, much less spinal flexibility, that's for sure. You don't have to be able to go into the yoga plow position and, you know, like lie on your back and then bring your feet up over your head and put your feet on the floor in order to pull off rolling back take from the top. If you're doing a lot of bolos from the bottom, you probably should be pretty comfortable in that upside down squished position, which immediately takes it out of play for make up a number here. 50% of jiu-jitsu practitioners. Yeah. You know, you brought up rightfully though, that as you get more senior, it just psychologically is difficult to force yourself to regress, to go back to using techniques that you're not good at, because yes, there is this pressure on you when you're a higher belt to perform. And that's unfortunate because that just flies in the face of skill acquisition, right? If you are afraid to look dumb, then it is hard for you to try new things because you will look dumb when you start. You will lose to people that you would normally beat. And especially with rolling back takes, often when you try them and fail, it looks absolutely ridiculous, right? So I think for that reason, it's hard sometimes for people to embrace techniques like this because of the possibility of looking stupid. Which would argue for teaching it to day one white belts because they know they're going to look stupid, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> There's something there. I'm going to have to revise the roadmap for BJJ book that I that so many people have downloaded and totally change it and just start with the, uh, the most fancy, most high percentage that you're going to do something stupid moves and then throw out all the tried and true positional hierarchy stuff. It's uh, very ecological of you, Stefan. I'm impressed. You know, oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> I don't want to open up that debate again. But beyond that though, I think that covers the bolo hook and the scissor wedge quite cleanly. Let's talk a bit about the twister hook here. Now I loved your verbal description of the bolo hook, but can you do the same for the twister hook? I'm curious to see if this can translate to audio. I think the easiest description for a twister hook is nothing to do with a rolling back take more of a traditional back take imagine if i'm turtled and you're going against me and i'm turtled and you're on my right side so my right thigh and my right elbow are close to you if you manage to insert your right hook as if you're going to take my back but you're going to insert your near hook first let's say i i have a very sloppy turtle i'm just more on all fours you know, there's tons of room no problem inserting your hook if you insert your right hook on my right leg and you're on my right side, that's essentially a twister hook, especially if you bring your instep over my calf area, my ankle area. So if you can achieve that hook from the top position of, say, side mount, that's the twister hook. But controlling your opponent with that one hook also allows you to roll. In the example I described with the turtle, Yes, you could put in your second hook and take my back as if it was, you know, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu versus the world in 1993 when people had no idea of how to defend against somebody taking the back. You know, the answer is to somebody being close to taking your back is clearly to, to post up on, all, on both knees and both hands and start to stand up and give the person access to put both hooks in. So that near side hook is the twister hook and you can use it to manipulate your opponent into a rolling back take. In this case, you don't need the scissor wedge because your control over your opponent's leg is so much better. It's a very secure form of hook. And to some extent, the function of the of the wedge is being replaced by your thigh because your leg is actually in the way of where his leg would need to go to get out. The problem with the twister hook is it's symmetrical. So if you have the twister hook on me and we're both lying on our backs, it's not super easy necessarily, but if you screw up, I can reverse the position. It's just like a Kimura. If you have a Kimura on me, a standing Kimura, I have a Kimura on you. If I pull your arms across and get them in front of my belly, I can now Kimura you. Or if you do a sloppy Kimura on me from half guard, I can Kimura you. Or if you have a T Kimura on me and you don't have your legs controlling the rest of my body, I can reverse it and get a T-Kimura on you. It's a symmetrical grip. Same for the twister hook. It's a symmetrical entanglement with your legs. So it has its advantages. It has its disadvantages. 
the main disadvantage, if you want to set up the rolling back take, you know, 10th planet styles, you need a fair amount of flexibility. You need a fair amount of external rotation of the leg and dexterity with your heel to be able to snag your opponent's leg. I think there are ways to do that where you don't need to have that same level of flexibility. I have very little hip flexibility and I've stolen and found ways to use the twister hook. And then at a more advanced level, say I go for the old scissor wedge rolling back take and it doesn't work. I can come back and transition into a twister hook back take, which changes the alignment somewhat. I can alternate between the two and I can also alternate between the leg bundle, leg position, the twister hook position and the scissor wedge position. So I don't know if that made the twister hook more understandable, but it is. I think it certainly did. I think that was a good explanation. I especially like the idea of relating it back to something more traditional, like trying to hop on someone's back. And I agree with you about the power of this hook for control. It's interesting because something you said there made me realize a parallel that I've never thought of before, which is when people see the Kimura trap for the first time, it can feel a little bit weird because... It looks like you're kind of diving into a submission, which is something we always tell people not to do, right? We always tell people, okay, don't just dive into a submission and hope for the best. And sometimes when you see people do Kimura traps, it looks like they're, especially if it's a rolling Kimura, it looks almost like they're just bypassing jujitsu and trying to jump right to a position without any control. But it turns out that Kimura control is so powerful that you can do that. And then just maintain that control and use it to, like you said, get to like a T Kimura, get to the back. There's so many things you can do as long as you maintain that grip. And a lot of these rolling back takes kind of remind me of that, where you're doing something similar, except instead of using the arm, you're using their leg. You're basically clamping onto their leg, creating movement, and you're having faith in the fact that your hook and your clamp is strong enough that you will be able to maintain that connection and get to the back eventually. Yes. And there are actually quite a few parallels between the Kimura and the twister hook. For one, you're basically at a gross level, your elbow is bent at 90 degrees roughly when you're being Kimura'd. And if someone's got a twister hook on you, usually your leg is going to also be bent. So it's, it's using that same almost uh, rotational control of one leg to control the body. I, I would say a disadvantage of the twister hook, if you're doing it from the top, is sometimes that the person's determined not to roll. It can be hard to generate the power to get up and over your opponent. I think that's less of an issue with scissor wedge back take. So there are advantages and disadvantages to both. You've got great control with the twister hook. That's an advantage. A disadvantage is it's slightly slower to set up. It can be reversed and it can be sometimes difficult to generate powerful enough base to jump over your opponent. The scissor wedge is somewhat less secure. That is a disadvantage. It's somewhat harder to reverse. If you have a scissor wedge on somebody, it's hard for them to turn around and scissor wedge you. And it's a little bit easier to generate enough base to get up and to initiate the movement. So I think you need both. If you at all can, having both is really better than having just one. You've already done a good job of explaining this, but I, I want to dig a bit deeper just because I love the idea. You talked about the third method here of entering into a rolling back take, the leg bundle. Um, and you brought up the just the great example of that, just that hideous version of mount where you basically clamp your legs down and wrap them around over top of the other person's and just basically have them like stuck in a position like a mermaid where they just cannot use their legs because they're glued together. Talk a little bit about how you can use this leg bundle approach to go to the back as well, because that is super interesting to me. There was something that Travis Stevens once told me. What he said was, if I can see the back, I can take the back. That was his mentality of as long as he can see the other person's back, he'll find a way to get onto that person's back. So that's kind of the dominant idea here. If I mounted on you and you're completely flat and you know, your arms are up and you're in the home alone position or your arms are pointing at my hips or, or whatever, it's going to be tough to take your back from there without the traditional methods of forcing one arm across and getting a gift wrap and slowly either forcing you onto your belly or, or slithering in behind you. But if you start turning on your side, either for an elbow knee escape or more for a kipping escape, you might have my hips immobilized with your framing, but now you're on your side. Meaning if I put my head over a little bit, I can see your back. I can see your spine. Meaning, if we go with the Travis Stevens heuristic, 
there's a way to take your back. So if you're beginning a kipping escape and you're getting up, rolling onto your left side, I'm going to turn and match you. This is traditional versus modern. Traditionally, if I'm in mount, if you turn onto your right side, you begin rolling onto your right side, you're beginning to work on my left leg to try and shove me into half guard or whatever. Traditionally, I would rotate counterclockwise so that my heel goes in your belly and my knee goes up behind your back. I'd go into technical mount. I think everybody who's been doing jiu-jitsu for a while has done this. Carlson Gracie guys here would be familiar with the triple attack series. You end up in a gift wrap type position. It's pretty easy to take the back traditionally. If I want to do a leg bundle, it's the opposite. If you turn onto your right side, I'm going to take my left knee and drive it into your belly. I'm going to post up on my right foot, which is closer to your spine, and I'm going to drag both of your legs towards me. I'm going to bundle your legs. If I can, I even triangle my legs. I go to, at this point, it's kind of Dagestani, halfway between mount and side mount. So I, I end up trapping your legs together and having you on your side, which is really, when you think about it, pretty similar to a dope mount position. It's just my legs aren't quite right. So I can see your back. I've kind of got you in a dope mount. I'm going to dive over your back facing your legs. And the momentum of that, plus the leg bundling, lifting both of your feet off the ground, making it that much harder for you to develop good base, allows me to climb to your back. The disadvantage of it is I usually end up somewhat lower on your back and I have to climb. So that's, it actually works very well in gi because then I can just get a horse collar. But I've pulled it off lots of times in no gi as well. So it's, it's doing the exact opposite. The traditional method of finishing from dope mount is to climb to the mount. The modern method is to not face the head at all. It's to face the legs and roll. The traditional method of dealing with somebody turning on their side, if you're in mount, is to bring the heel that's on the side of their belly into their belly and to post on the other knee. The modern method where you're trying to go for a leg bundle back take is to do the exact opposite. The knee that's closer to the belly stays down. The other foot posts. You collect both of the legs and you go. If you get good at that, even if you never, ever, ever hit it from mount, it's still useful in the rolling back takes game because say you're going for a twister hook back take, say you're going for a scissor wedge back take and it stalls out. The guy just manages to have both one foot on the ground for long enough to produce enough base to not want to roll. If you can, in midair, collect both legs, which you will have trained doing the same basic attack from the mount, then you can remove his ability of both of his feet to post on the ground or one of his feet to post on the ground and turning him into much more of a ball rather than a sprawled out futon. And now it's easier to roll them. So I think it's a very valuable move to practice, both because it's cool as hell when you hit it from the mount and it's fun and things that are fun probably get retained much better than things that are boring, but also it's a useful mechanism to train that transition if you're trying another back take and it's just not working and you have to upgrade your position slightly. I found it very useful for that. Man, it sounds super cool. It's not something that I have been using, but I think after this, I'm definitely going to go and have to study up on it. And this kind of gets into the last thing I wanted to ask you about, which is attributes, right? Um, rightly or wrongly, when people think of rolling back takes, they often think of a kind of like a mean and lean, young, small, flexible, super athlete. But you, like I said, are are not that demographic, right? You're an older guy. You're a bigger guy. You're crippled in every way that I can imagine someone to be crippled. So <laughs> with all of those things said, <laughs> I, I love mean, you it, too. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, we don't lie here on BJJ Mental Models, but for all of those things said, you know, you've found ways to make this work. And I wonder, do you think that there are attribute concerns here? I mean, if someone has really poor hip flexibility or knee flexibility, or if their legs are kind of stockier and shorter, do you see this as being a viable game plan for them? Or is there a point at which we have to just tell people, you know what, maybe just stick to classic jujitsu instead? I would say that the Overton window for being able to do rolling back takes from the top is incredibly large. I think there's an entire realm of rolling back takes, call it the Barambolo, and if we include the crab ride as a rolling back take, which arguably it is, I think those Barambolos and crab rides, those do require 
specific attributes. They require a fair bit of flexibility. They require a very high degree of kinesthetic awareness and comfort with bouncing off of your head as your opponent's butt goes on your face. If you can't do the yoga plow, I don't think doing a barambolo is safe. I know people can pull it off if they're not quite flexible enough to put the feet on the ground above their head when they're lying flat on their back, but I'm not sure it's safe. If something goes wrong, if the guy's weight shifts, you could hurt your back. I don't think that's the case with rolling back takes from the top. I think really the only requirement is the ability to do a shoulder roll. There are people who can't do shoulder rolls. And it's even not, when you're doing it with a partner, it's even not a full shoulder roll. But let's, it's more like a flopping over onto your side. It's like a badly done shoulder roll. Like if, if I do a shoulder roll well, going down the mat in a straight line, when you see people do shoulder rolls poorly, they sort of start out facing 12 o'clock and then they kind of end up with their head at three o'clock and their feet at nine o'clock. That's not the best for beautiful shoulder rolls, but it basically is what happens when you're doing a rolling back take. So let's make this one step safer. Let's say if you can do a decent shoulder roll, if you do a even a somersault, then I think you can do this. Who would I disrecommend from doing this? It really depends on the pedagogy. I think showing somebody a super cool rolling back take from a position. Okay, okay, here's a, somebody puts you into this leg lock, this, uh, someone puts you into the 411 and they're heel hooking you and you're going to block the knee here and then you're going to backstep and you're going to step over them. And you're going to kick their leg free and now you're going to roll back the way you came except you're hooking their leg. Like that's a move that very kinesthetically aware people can pull off, but that's not how people should learn this. People should learn this move from a leg wrestling position. If you can do it from a leg wrestling position and get the mechanism down and you feel comfortable with the mechanism, then you should consider adding it to your game. And I'm going to hazard a guess that 90% of people doing jiu-jitsu on any mat in North America or in the world today can pull off the basic mechanism. And I did just put that you know, YouTube video up, the easiest way to do a, uh, a rolling back take. It's a pretty long video. It's not from the instructional that I put out, but it's inspired by the concepts in there. It's kind of proof of concept. If you can do this, then you, know, you don't need to pay for anything. You just go try this with a training partner. If this kind of clicks for you, yeah, then maybe invest further in this position. I think rather than constraining it, trying to make a decision, oh, is this game for me? Is it not for me? Man, watch a 10-minute YouTube video and then spend 15 minutes training it with a buddy at the very worst, you learn, hey, this isn't for me. I really don't think there's too many constraints doing it from the top. I think if you're, this is a big size difference. If you're a lot smaller than your opponent and your opponent is pretty canny, then I think you could end up running into problems potentially. So I think that's probably the primary physical limitation. If you can't do a shoulder roll and you're trying to do it on somebody who's 60 pounds heavier than you and understands the game, I think that might not be the best strategic uh, decision. Understandable. Well, we covered a lot, man, and I can't thank you enough for coming by and sharing this uh, quick intro here. Anything on the rolling back take that you want to talk about that we missed, which you think is worth mentioning before we tie this up? I just want to reiterate that it's important for beginners to have fun. And I'm not suggesting this for like zero stripe white belts, but by the time you're getting close to blue belt, it might be something you want to play with. I am beginning to see this a lot more at the lower belts. I think it's a great example of how jiu-jitsu changes, right? Rolling back takes have been around for a long time, but they've kind of become democratized in recent years. And I started to train this because I didn't want to be left behind. And unfortunately, jiu-jitsu, <laughs> unfortunately and fortunately, there are so many areas of jiu-jitsu, you're always going to be behind in some of them. If you spend all your time training the latest, greatest guards and you understand every variation of lapel guard and nogi, you know, crazy nogi clamp-based guards and mantis guards and this and that, then your guard passing is going to suffer. And if you get really good at guard passing, then your positional escapes are going to suffer. And if you spend all your time on buggy chokes, then your arm bars are going to go down the drain. You're always going to be lagging behind somewhere. And that's both the frustration and the beauty of jujitsu. But I think it's pretty important to try and stay up with the major trends. Maybe you're not going to become an expert, but you should 
at least understand a little bit. It's, there's nothing sadder than some guy who's got, you know, six, seven, eight, nine stripes on their black belt and haven't stayed current, don't even watch any competition. And they're showing techniques that some 50-year-old techniques work great. But if you don't stay up, keep up with the times and you're not doing your students, you are doing your students a disservice as well because they're going to go out and they're going to get caught in something they've never seen before because you've never seen it before. And so at a more advanced level, I think it's important to at least have a passing familiarity with most of the trends. And then when you get asked about something you don't know, be honest. I don't know is a valid answer for an instructor, hopefully followed by, I don't know, but let's find out together. Well, with that said, let's find out together, Stefan. Let's sell some instructionals. If people want to get this and they want to learn and actually see all of these things that you've talked about, how did they go about doing that? I would suggest by not buying anything first, I would suggest go look at my YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash Stefan Kesting, or just search my name. Recently, I've been putting out a fair bit of stuff on rolling backtakes. It'll, some of it's from the instructional. They can get a sense of what's on it. They can get a sense of my teaching style, whether they like it or not. And if they're unfamiliar with the position or they've done it once or twice and they don't really know if it's for them, then go watch that, uh, that introductory video. I think that'll be, uh, it'll help clarify if nothing else, it'll help clarify the mechanics of the position and what's happening. And it'll demystify an area of jiu-jitsu. This is an eminently demystifiable set of techniques. Yeah, awesome. Well, as I always do, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. So like Stefan said, if you want to check out some of his recent free stuff on YouTube about rolling back takes, just pop open your podcast player. There will be links in there for you. I'll also put a link to the instructional. I mean, everyone who's been listening for a while knows I've always been high on your instructional, Stefan. Uh, Grapple Arts is my favorite place to get the stuff. So please do check it out, everyone. Again, link in the show notes. I forgive you for using the adjective geriatric. <laughs> <laughs> you literally made an instructional series about how you're an old fuck. So, I mean, <laughs> I opened that door, I suppose. Yes, I am literally just going along with the marketing here. But in, hey, one thing I have learned recently, there's a lot of old fucks who do jujitsu and they need people to cater to them. So I think this is great, right? I also love the fact that this is a rolling back take instructional made for normal people. I always feel that when you look at uh, meta chasers, there's often this assumption that you're a 20-year-old super athlete, and sometimes that informs the way techniques are taught. So I really think it's great that there is a rolling back takes for the rest of us instructional that's available out there. Well, thank you so much, Steve. It's been a pleasure as always. Awesome. And yeah, for those who don't know, all of our stuff lives at bjjmentalmodels.com. I'll toss a link in the show notes there too. There's well over 250 hours worth of free episodes there if you want to go and dig into the back catalog. All of them are intended to be timeless and evergreen. So even if you go back to episode one, which a lot of people do. The content back there is still very useful. You can also sign up for our newsletter there, which is free and comes with all sorts of supplementary materials that are very helpful to go alongside these podcast episodes. And of course, if you want to dig in deeper, that's what premium is for. You can get a free trial seven days at bjjmentalmodels.com. Join premium and you get a bunch of stuff. You get access to a ton more content, uh, both in the form of structured courseware, but also in the form of new ongoing podcasts hosted by people who are frankly smarter than myself. Um, we've got an amazing new podcast on there featuring Emily Kwok and Joe Hannon called The Highest Levels, comes out every month. Definitely recommend people check it out if they don't already. You also get direct coaching from our Black Belt team, as well as access to our community. Really, it's a super unique service, and I do recommend everyone at least give it a try to see if it's kind of that missing puzzle piece they've been looking for. Again, link in the show notes or just go to bjjmentalmodels.com to get everything. But Stefan, thanks a lot, man. Always love having these chats. I'm going to go pick up that instructional and give it a study and I'm going to go and uh, rolling back, take some white belts. Thanks to you. I didn't think that we could do it. I didn't think that we could discuss this position in podcast format. So congratulations. <laughs> I thought it came out really well, man. I, I think that this was actually a really clear and comprehensive discussion. So listeners, let me know. I'm always curious to know when we get into these mechanical nuts and bolts conversations, does this translate well? And is it as helpful as kind of the higher level stuff? I always want to know that. But yeah, I thought this one came out great. So thanks again, Stefan. Really appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon, buddy. And same with the listeners. We'll see you next week. Take care.